Hey, I'm Alex. And I am Brandon. Hey, Brandon. I am Brandon. Brandon, <laughs> do you remember when Rudy Giuliani was making $20,000 a day instead of getting sued for $2.7 billion? Colludy Rudy. <laughs> do you remember Polly Sai? <laughs> All right. Yes, it's it's our podcast, Brandon. I'm so excited. <laughs> I love doing this. Oh, no, yeah. did, I, I had to look this up because I was just kind of wondering. Rudy Giuliani is worth forty five million dollars and he is party to now two lawsuits, one from Smartmatic. Um, he's one of the parties for the two point seven billion dollar lawsuit and then one from Dominion, which I believe was like one point three billion. So Rudy is looking at some pretty dire straits if these lawsuits go the way that they appear to be going. I actually I'll be completely honest. I'm surprised he's not worth more than forty five million just considering all of the shady characters that he's been associated with the last couple of years, namely Trump. Uh, I know, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Come on, Rudy. You were willing to literally do anything and that's all you got? That's kind of <laughs> <laughs> you sold out your soul and you violated various laws and you've completely abandoned any shade of being a human and that's all you got is 45 million. Not worth yeah. it. There's there's a, a German dude in Germany I was just reading about who Wait, made there's a German dude in Germany? A German dude in Germany who made <laughs> $67 million just mining Bitcoin on other people's computers. He just got caught, unfortunately, but he refused to give up the passwords. So whenever he gets out of jail, he's got, you know, however many millions sitting in like these anonymous Bitcoin accounts. So That's funny. Wait a minute. Know, Since crazy. we were talking pre-show about cryptocurrency, do you understand what the process is of mining a a cryptocurrency of like mining a Bitcoin? Like, could you give a 30 second explanation when people say, oh, my computer's mining Bitcoin? What does that actually mean? OK, yeah, I actually can. But, you know, if we have any computer scientists in the audience or people who actually have expertise in this area, um, this is not my area of expertise. So please forgive my oversimplification. But I, I do kind of understand the broad strokes of what's going on. Cryptocurrency is a decentralized currency platform, right? So when you're doing business with a bank, the bank is the clearinghouse for for those funds, right? So let's say I want to transfer five dollars from my account to yours. Our bank basically says, yep, you have five Alex. Yep. Brandon, you have an account. Okay. We're moving it over, right? The bank is in control of that. Now banks, of course, you know, use your money that you've invested in them to make investments, to produce uh, financial instruments like mortgages. They make a lot of money on that. And so a lot of people have said, you know, all the cards are sort of in the bank's hands because they're the ones who control the capital. And I think, you know, clearly they're some of the most successful businesses in the world for a reason, right? So what a cryptocurrency is, is a decentralized currency exchange where the ledger of where those where those funds are actually held is actually kept on many, many, many different machines. Any machine that is part of the cryptocurrency exchange, when you're mining Bitcoin, you're, you're doing one of two things. You're either you're processing payments, essentially, in combination with no, a number of other machines. So every time you want to transfer a, a, a electronic cryptocurrency from one you know, machine to another, it has to go through a process of verification, right? That I actually had that, that currency and that you're actually going to get it. And so when you're mining cryptocurrencies, you're basically one of the computers kind of acting as a decentralized clearinghouse for those extent, uh, for those things to take place, those exchanges to take place. I know early Why on. Why did they use the term mining then? Like if you are a conduit through which this transaction is happening, I guess I just I thought it had 
yeah, I guess that's just not how I understood that it worked. It's just it, all of it is very confusing to me. There's another well, there's another like more classical definition of mining. You could actually make Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies out of thin air by having that's your what computer. I'm talking about. That's what yeah, I'm talking by, about. By having your computer like solve these increasingly complex algorithms. And I guess right, it took so a lot of processing power to do that. And what's the point? So I guess I don't understand. That's that's what I'm talking about. What is the point of that, of having your computer solving these increasingly complicated algorithms? Why does that how does that translate into a i don't know man it's just that this is like i know it's it's mind-bending okay so now I, gotten, I feel like a parent in the early 90s trying to understand super nintendo that's how i feel right now no absolutely i mean yeah we're this is this is the <laughs> point where you would need actually like a data scientist or a computer scientist to explain the math the deep math behind what these Jesus. currencies actually <laughs> sounds like a, a villain from some interesting movie, like <laughs> maybe Sesame Street. Oh, like I'll villain. never solve my <laughs> equations because I'm deep math. <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. So my understanding is that, you know, these these algorithms have gotten more and more complex where it doesn't make a lot of sense to mine Bitcoin anymore. Like you can't really make a lot of money doing it um, unless you have these giant uh, houses full of servers. And then I was reading a couple years back that the the cost of just operating these giant warehouses, the cost of the electricity outstripped the number of Bitcoins you were actually able to mine, like the actual money you would get paid to actually do it. So the whole thing is very convoluted. It'd be fun to have somebody on who has like, a, you know, deep expertise in this at some point. Wild. Yeah. Okay. Well that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm left more confused than when I started, but at least I know that it's complex and I'm okay for being confused. All you need to know, Brandon, is that you should invest in doggy coin. <laughs> my drop damn it yes, all right i did that i did that purposely yeah you did uh, <laughs> i'd rather get i'm sneaking oh. it in there somewhere okay uh for the audience to know you know brandon was sort of like heckling me for mispronouncing uh one of the cryptocurrencies doge but it's it's literally got a picture of a dog on it and it is spelled d-o-g-e-c-o-i-n doggy but that's coin. not how you spell doggy it's g-g-y it's dog e it's an e-coin I just, it's, but it's Doge. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it at the end of the episode so people can listen to that drop. Do whatever but you that's, want. That is not why we are here, Alex. Why no, are we here? No, we're here because we're we're gonna do the news. You can use. Ow! Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right, I love, folks. I, I love how we have no actual like sound effects. I actually, you know, I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, creating a drop for that which i could do hey with uh, this keyboard that you got me by the way thank you for that um and my electronic oh, you're most kit. welcome yeah, yeah. I, I feel like i could probably do that with i don't know i mean it's so organic that we just like call it out and like sing it out it's kind of funny but it also shows like how low rent we are <laughs> uh maybe i'll make a drop yeah I, i've actually i have been thinking about that but news I, we uh, can use yeah, let's start with that. So, I mean, I, I got to go back to um, talking about Trump a little bit because we're not talking you just, about... You got to put down the pipe, man. You just can't stop sucking the teat of Donnie, can you? Uh, well, the thing is, the reverberations of his rule continue. And, you know, he has created a political situation that's going to need some disentangling uh probably forever. But so my question to you, Brandon, is what are we dealing with? Do we have a Republican party now or do we have a Trumplican party? What are we dealing with? Because it seems like there's these two warring factions. You know, there's the institutionalists within the Republican party who are trying to go back to some sort of normalcy, right? Get away from, you know, the cult of personality of Donald Trump. And then you have, you know, 
GOP state legislatures and 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 Republican groups that are passing these you know, statements left and right, basically chastising people for ever questioning Donald Trump. You know, if you voted for, you know, impeachment, then then we need to produce a censure document against you. So what is going on here? What, what are your thoughts on this? I Well, to your question about what's what's happening and how it's going to shake out, we don't know yet. We're in the midst of some kind of a political reorganization. And the short explanation, you have Trump that's activated a lot of people, but the the number of people who really strongly support Trump is not a political majority. It's not even a political majority within the Republican Party, probably. I mean, a lot of people who supported Trump, voted for Trump, are not these rabid Trump supporters. They're people who find parts about Trump appealing, but mostly it's like, look, he's the most politically aligned candidate of those available, and that's why they supported him. He was a Republican, had an R next to his name. That's That's pretty much it. But if you look at the number of people who really strongly support Trump, he didn't win the 2016 popular vote. He didn't win the 2020 popular vote. Republicans did not do well in the midterms. We've talked about how Republicans did not do well in the Senate runoffs in Georgia, probably in large part because Trump was putting his thumb on the scale and, you know, trying to blow. We've heard now that he was blowing both of those candidates, those Republican candidates off message. That didn't help them. So. You have the Republican Party is trying to reckon with we have a lot of people who support Trump. We need to keep these people in the party, but they don't represent a political majority. And so if Republicans are not able to gerrymander and voters suppress their way into power, they need to figure out something other than just the Trump brand of Republicanism to gain back that political majority. And what I would say, and I, I wonder, wonder your thoughts on this, doesn't it seem like the easiest solution for Republicans is simply to change their platform, to change the things they care about, to close, to more closely reflect the will of the American people? Doesn't that seem like the best way to get back to the majority rather than trying to ham fist your way, again, through gerrymandering and through voter suppression into governing with a minority of voters, it just seems to be the Republican Party is in the midst of change, but they don't know what they want that change to be. I think you hit the nail on the head, though, with that. So the the will of the American people of 30 percent of the American people is the cult of personality of Donald Trump. And that is the problem that they're facing. And I think for Republicans, you know, in some ways it might be expedient for them if Donald Trump was actually convicted in the Senate and barred from running for office, because then people like Ted Cruz could say, I supported Donald Trump to the bitter end. And now I'm the continuation of Donald Trump because they need those 25, 33 percent of people who rabidly support Trump. There's been some interesting litmus tests that have been going on nationally. One of them was Liz Cheney, right? Liz Cheney, number three in the Republican uh, minority, minority Republican House. And she survived a test uh, against her leadership role there. Of course, she was much humiliated and chastised within the party for coming out and voting for the impeachment of Donald John Trump. And, you know, there was this high profile vote in in the in the Congress and it wasn't even close. I mean, she survived that challenge. Right. So that was sort of interesting for me and kind of I showed- do, I, really quick. Though, I do think it's interesting. If she did survive that challenge. That vote was not made public. Right. So no, Mac- it was it was made public. I, I can't well, remember I thought what it was exact- a private vote. 
No, 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 it, it was. It, and it wasn't even close. Um, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, it was it was a good, you know, 50 votes, 50 votes in her favor yeah. okay, for maintaining her position. So, no, no worries. I mean, I, I just found that interesting because I thought the, the thing is, the Trump supporters are so vocal. You know, they say that they're the silent majority. They're more like the blaring minority. I mean, they scream, they invade capitals, they wave flags, they, you know, make a lot of ruckus. But when when it comes down to an up or down vote against Liz Cheney and, and her continued role in leadership, she easily survived it. So that was interesting. Another interesting, you know, litmus test was uh, Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, who's a Republican. And, you know, we've brought him up a couple of times because he is a more middle of the road, moderate Republican. And he happens to be one of the senators who actually has has come out and, um, you know, made statements against Trump. And so Nebraska's state central committee of the Republicans decided to censure him. And he had an amazing quote. Um, he said, let's be clear. You know, this is Ben Sass talking, not me. Let's be clear. The anger in the state party has never been about me violating principle or abandoning conservative policy. I'm one of the most conservative voters in the Senate. The anger has always been simply about me not bending the knee to one guy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that kind of well. sums up that that sums up where the Republican Party is right now. By the way, I do want to make an update, Alex, that vote with Liz Cheney was indeed private. We don't know who voted for her or against her. Um, so we but know we know don't the, we have the numbers, but you don't the, know the people. We have the numbers. But but what I meant by private is that we don't know who voted which way. Ah, right, right. I think that that's important, right, because I yes, do think yes. that. So much of the support for Trump is performative on behalf of Republicans. I think it speaks to something where if you were to ask a lot of these people what they actually thought, what they actually thought was good for the party, what they actually thought was good for their constituents, you would not see the support for Trump that you see. He thrives on being able to use public shaming and manipulating yeah. people he's through just, the media in order to just, support yeah. him. I think that's an important point. Well, I'm glad you looked that up. So do you have the, the actual like uh, statistics on, on the number, the vote count up or down? Yes. What, it, what was According it? to two people familiar with the results, it was yes. 145 to 61. See, look at that. That's not even close. Not close. And again, yeah. that was under the blanket of anonymity. And I do think that that's important because, again, Trump operates in the public sphere of communications, right? Like that is that is how he got to power. That's how he wielded power. And it, I think it's interesting that once you ask people what they actually think under the cover of privacy, that their opinions seem to change quite a bit. Yeah, so I think the person who most wants Donald Trump involved in the Republican Party going forward is Donald Trump himself. And of course, he's yielded this bully pulpit of, you know, his social media in the past. He feels so distant and far away now that that's gone. You know, I haven't heard. I don't even know what Trump thinks about what's going on now. I don't particularly care, but it's been nice to have that space to breathe where the news cycle can focus on other things that feel a lot more constructive to me. And yeah, um, this podcast kicks off by talking about Trump. <laughs> well, you have I mean, you have to you, you have to wonder where you this know is that all he's going. listening to us right now, smiling <laughs> <laughs> Two two obscure brothers mentioned my name. <laughs> so I'm I so mean, popular. I'm still leading this show. I'm leading all the podcasts. <laughs> Their ratings are up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my so God. McCarthy, you know, the the minority leader of the House, uh, McCar uh, what's his first Kevin. name? I'm trying to remember. Kevin McCarthy. Kevin! I, I <laughs> Kevin, alone. get over. Kevin. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Which, again, not to be too tangential, but, um, you know, Donald Trump had a brief cameo in one of the Home Alone movies. Oh, and yeah. grown up, grown up, washed up act, actor Macaulay Culkin made a plea to have him digitally removed. <laughs> I think we have so- even more on that in just a moment, but I'm going to leave oh, that there. So, so McCarthy met with Trump last week in stupid Mar-a-Lago, and they met to, quote, Discuss taking back the House in 2022. The question is, is Trump a liability or is he actually a secret weapon? And I think that's one of the reasons I keep kind of bringing this up. You know, I'm going to dovetail this into the next bullet point that we have on our list here, Brandon, which is I, I like what some people are calling this new ultra ultra right wing um, section of the Republican Party, the QAnon caucus spelled with a Q. <laughs> you know, the most pr- the most notable members being Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Laura- have we decided it's Bobart, L- Lauren Bobart? I don't actually know, to be completely honest. Lauren Bobart of Colorado, right? The two the two ladies who proudly want to bring their guns to Congress and walk around Washington, D.C. with a gun on their hip because that's how you show strength is by carrying deadly weapons everywhere. Right. So, um, Um, Some interesting things happened with MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're going to call her MTG because she deserves her own acronym. Um, Does she, though? (laughs) In in my mind, she does, I guess. We're we're talking about her, right? So um, do you want to do the quick, like, brief on what happened with her this week, this last week? Uh, Why don't you go ahead and do it? I mean, there's there's a lot going on right now, Alex. Yeah. So essentially, you know, in in Congress, there are these committees, right, that people serve on. And I know you know about these committees because you're extremely proud that Bernie Sanders is going to be serving on which is it? But is it the Senate Budget Committee that he's on now? Yep. And we're going to talk more about that in a second, too. So Marjorie Taylor Greene um, has a very checkered history. She's not really a politician, yet she rose to power in Georgia, which is interesting because Georgia was the turning point state for this whole, you know, takeover of the Senate by Democrats. And and with um, Trump losing the state of Georgia, the first uh, Republican to lose in many, many, well, decades, I guess, since Clinton. Um, So Marjorie Taylor Greene was on the Education and Labor Committees. Uh, education and 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 budget committee. Sorry, education and labor and budget committees, and being on these committees basically, you know, people get together, they discuss legislation, they write legislation, propose it. So these are powerful positions to be in these committees, and. Um, some videos and audio came out of some things that Marjorie Taylor Greene did before she was a congresswoman, and she believes some very crazy things. Would you like me to tell you about some of the things she believed? Please do. And by the way, her defense of this later was that she was, quote, allowed to believe some things that weren't true. How you're allowed to believe what does anyway, we'll we'll get into that. Well, OK, so notably, she never said, I'm sorry. Right. Like, OK, well, it's because that, she's that, not. That's one way, though. I mean, honestly, if she really cared about maintaining her position on the education and labor and budget committees, she could have just said, you know, I was wrong and I'm sorry. I don't understand why people have problem doing that. Why? I, it doesn't show weakness to say that you're sorry. Um, actually, it prevents divorce. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's like so really important. Does. So, OK, she she uh, subscribes to a number of totally wacky QAnon conspiracy theories. One that bothered me many years ago was that Sandy Hook, uh, the the incredibly just heartbreaking shooting in, in Sandy Hook was a hoax. Right. That no no students actually died, that the government created a, quote, false flag situation to 
produce legislation to take everyone's guns. This is the far right's response to any act of violence involving firearms that occurs in this country. They simply say it didn't happen or they say that it was, you know, engineered by George Soros to convince people that guns are bad. And so she never apologized for that. Okay, Um, she had this this social media post that fires in California were essentially caused by a giant space laser that was being um, uh, it was being held and operated by the Bilderberg group, which is a a thinly veiled anti-Semitic attack. So that's where the Jewish space laser thing comes from. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Her ads, her I, I looked some of these up, her advertisement from her actual campaign showed her with a leather jacket, um, neo sunglasses, Matrix style, holding an AR-15 rifle with the faces of uh, the squad behind her, like AOC and others, and the tagline, squad's worst enemy. So essentially threatening violence against, you know, now fellow cog- colleagues in, in the Congress. So with all of these things on the table, you know, Democrats pleaded with the Republican minority leader to do something right. At least make an example out of this. Will you will you at least, you know, not condone this type of behavior in one of your members and do something about it? And Kevin McCarthy said, no, we're not doing anything about it. It's not politically expedient for us to do anything. And so Democrats had to force a vote on the House floor. And now she has been removed from those committees. She will remain a member of Congress because for her to actually be removed would take a two thirds majority. So that's sort of the nutshell um, of what's going on with MTG right now. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that image that she appeared in front of, you know, that, um, the hearkening to firearms and targeting. I, I don't think that we can forget that back in, I think it was in 2011 where Gabby Giffords, who was a, um, a oh, congresswoman man. from Arizona, she, mm-hmm. there was an assassination attempt because some people think Sarah Palin had a similar image of these crosshairs mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. certain, um, congressional representatives it's that kind of imagery that kind of rhetoric that can activate or give permission to people who would try to harm or, or kill you and i think that and we, we, should... we have to say you know that assassination attempt ended in a life-altering disability uh, right. for gabby giffords i mean she was barely able to speak for many years and and now um you know severely it... reduced in her capabilities and so that is just a tragic tragic event it is. And I mean, it's it, also it's it's I think it's notable just if we're talking about Arizona politics, that her husband, Mark Kelly, is now the newly elected senator from Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, he is in Congress and knows very well what that kind of imagery and rhetoric can lead to. Um, so all of this, as I said earlier, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that she was allowed to believe these things. Bullshit. There is information on the Internet about Anything, right? You can find the most out there wackadoodle opinions, conspiracy theories. Just because it's there doesn't mean that anyone is holding your hand or prodding you to believe them. If you want to espouse something, to share something, then you have to own it. And that is to your point where she didn't apologize for any of this. This is a complete 
lack of responsibility. I mean, it's funny that like the party of responsibility never takes responsibility for its own actions, right? Republicans seem to be allergic to actually taking responsibility for the things that they do and they say and the actions that it leads to. And so, yeah, I, she was removed from those committees. And yeah, like you said earlier too, being on those committees has a lot of power. And so this is a very, very good thing. And I wanted to mention the last person to be kicked off committees was Representative Steve King, I believe, of Maine. And I don't know if you remember this a couple of years ago. He it was like totally insane. He, he, he came out and actually said in public, well, I don't understand why the term white supremacy is offensive. What's wrong with thinking that white people are great? Wow. <laughs> it's just, so wow. and then he and here's here's the thing. He lost his reelection campaign. And I think it sends a pretty strong message to your electorate when you are stripped of committee assignments. Right. We're basically saying, like, you're not fit to do your job. This is the right. job. I mean, these people are not in Congress to march around with stupid masks. That's the other thing I really don't like about her. She wears these dumb masks with really simple, ridiculous polit political messages on them, like Trump won, you know, or I've been silenced or, oh, you know, you know what oh, my favorite is? And it wasn't her wearing it, but it was a, a, one of her Republican colleagues. This person wore a mask that said, I'm only wearing this so I don't get fined. But you know what he had under that mask, Alex? An Another N95 mask. mask. <laughs> right. That tells you everything. You, he oh. wants to be protected against other people, but also wants to oh. performatively pretend like he doesn't believe in the science of masks. And there he is wearing an N95 mask underneath. I just think that's hilarious. So it's wow. awful. I mean, it's really awful. These people are playing to, again, 30% of the population that have been listening to angry talk radio. I hope we don't fall again. I just, I just have to say, I hope we don't fall into the uh, classification of angry left-wing talk radio, Brandon. But like, oh, man. you know, on, on the right, they've been questioning the legitimacy of our government for 20 years. They've been demonizing Democrats to the point where a good proportion of the country now believes that Democrats are literally satanic literally satanic yeah. when you believe someone is satanic is there anything you wouldn't do to them these these thoughts these this this information that people are being fed has real life consequences and i don't think we've seen the end of it yet that's yeah. the scary thing for me i really don't think we've seen the end of it this this stuff is not going anywhere yeah i totally agree it is scary <sighs> Okay, well, can I do one more Trump story? It's just so funny. I yeah, just we, have to. Hey, we previewed this a couple minutes ago. Go for it. <laughs> I think it's great. I, Why not? Um, dude, I just have to like do a preliminary laugh so I don't laugh when I read. Okay, so Trump, Donald Trump has been reduced to um, just being a mean old man holed up in his golf resort, right? <laughs> he's no longer he's no longer president of the United States. He's no longer on Twitter. Um, he no longer has, you know, people, you know, trying to get his ear and feed him information because he has no executive power. So he's reduced to just being a bitter, mean old man. And there was a story in the news a week and a half ago or so that the Screen Actors Guild was going to censure Trump because he instigated a riot and violence uh, at the Capitol, which he 100 percent did. And he put the lives of many people in danger, including members of the Screen Actors Guild who are members of the media. Right. So Donald Trump found 
found out about this, that the Screen Actors Guild was getting ready to censure him. And in true Trump style, rather than, you know, let this just occur, which, you know, what what sort of effect does it have on a man like Donald Trump to be censured by the Screen Actors Guild? Like, who cares? Like, hurts what is his it? ego? Yeah, it hurts his ego, right? So, of course, he had to write them a letter. And I, I came across the letter and it just made me laugh. I felt like I had to read the letter. Please. So, I'm going to read it. It, it. It's printed on letterhead that shows the seal of the president of the United States of America, but it doesn't say president. It just says the office of Donald J. Trump. <laughs> uh, and, sorry, I just got a call. I don't know if you heard that. Um, I've no. silenced my phone. So, okay. So it, it's printed on letterhead February 4th, 2021 to the Screen Actors Guild. I write to you today. Regarding the so-called disciplinary committee hearing aimed at revoking my union membership, who cares? While I'm not familiar with your work, I'm very proud of my work on movies such as <laughs> such as Home Alone 2, Zoolander, and Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, and television shows including The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Saturday Night Live, and of course, one of the most successful shows in all of television history. The Apprentice, just to name a few. I've also greatly helped the cable news network business, said to be a dying platform with not much time left until I got involved in politics and created what? thousands of jobs at networks such as MSDNC and Fake News CNN, among many others. What a fucking which, weirdo. Which brings me to your blatant attempt at free media attention to distract from your dismal record as a union. Your organization has done little for its members and nothing for me. Besides collecting dues and promoting dangerous un-American policies and ideas, as evident, he says as evident instead of as evidenced, <laughs> as evident by your massive unemployment rates and lawsuits from celebrated actors who are recording a video asking, why is this union not fighting for me? These, however, are policy failures. Your disciplinary failures are even more egregious. I no longer wish to be associated with your union. As such, this letter is to inform you of my immediate resignation. You have done nothing for me. Regards. Oh my god. <laughs> and so the, the Man, leader of that... It, the honestly, leader of it kind of sounds like something that a ninth grader would write to their boyfriend <laughs> to preemptively break up with him. Like... <laughs> It's like it literally sounds like that. Like that is the level of maturity that we're dealing with here. I it's so it's so petty. It's so lowly. It is like this person was president of the United States for four years and he feels the need to write a letter like this. It's, it's just, just it's wild. It's completely and so the, wild. The leader of the union responded to Trump in a two word tweet. Just two words. This is how you this is how you handle Donald Trump, by the way. Her tweet just said, thank you. Period. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's I mean, there's no need to give this guy any more oxygen or attention as I am now going to roll into other bullet points talking about Donald Trump. But no, I mean, really, like this is I, I just I, I have a hard time thinking that even the most vocal Trump supporters in Congress truly, truly think that that individual should be the standard bearer for their political party. I have a very hard time believing that. I think that as that vote against Lin uh, about Liz Cheney shows that when you were in private, that things look a little bit different. It is just hard for me to believe that anybody, anybody thinks that it's politically expedient to continue tying their wagon to his star. But here we are. Yeah. And the problem is, I mean, imagine you're a Republican in a super Republican district 
and you're being primaried, I mean, who's going to come to those events? It's going to be people from the far right who want to hear their their point of view expressed. I mean, and if you don't, and that's the thing Trump has been so good at and what he's encouraged through the party are these, you know, to use the term again, these litmus tests, like you're either with us or against us, right? Do you support me wholeheartedly or do you not? Remember, Donald Trump is a man who threw pretty much everyone, including his own vice president, under the bus at the end of his presidency in an attempt at a coup. He, he right. literally threw Mike Pence under the bus because Mike Pence wouldn't do something that he had no legal authority to do, mainly overturn an election. Right. So, I mean, Donald Trump is just he's that toxic. He asks you to give everything. And if you won't go 100 percent all the way, you're fired. Well, it's you know, funny. I mean, the, the consequences, the consequences of his actions are starting to catch up with him. I mean, we now have a majority of Americans, 56 percent to 43, who think Trump should be barred from ever running from office again. I think that that's important because just about a month ago, only 47 percent said that Trump should be barred from running for office compared to 49% who said that he shouldn't. So in the course of just one month, you've seen this massive shift. I mean, a 13-point swing toward people who think that Trump should never be able to run for office again. I do think that's an extremely important data point. If that trend continues, you're going to see Republicans having a harder and harder time trying to both maintain their political power and harness the power of those Trump voters. I do think that in the months ahead, in the years ahead, the Republican Party has a massive problem on its hands. And I, for one, couldn't be any happier. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I mean, this is I, 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 I couldn't I couldn't uh, even respond to that. You could, I couldn't I be mean, any happier. Look, like the Republican Party has been rotting for decades. Right. The the fiscal conservatism of the 1960s, the polite debate where you would allow your opponent to say things and you'd respond to it with facts that has been buried for, like I said, decades. So whether you want to call this a realignment, whether you want to call this a reckoning, there's something happening within the Republican Party. And it's good to see because that my hope, my hope is that whatever comes out the other end looks a lot less like Trump and looks a lot more like the type of when you think of like the polite Republicans, they want to be fiscally conservative, right? They want to be smart with the budget. They want to be cautious about things. They don't want to move too fast. Those are values that you actually do need in your in your politics, in your policies. You do need to have both a, a part of your politics that wants to push, that wants to take risks. That's important. You also need a part of your politics that says, hold on a second. What are the structures? How do we do this deliberately and at its best in probably this is probably a fantasy that never actually existed but in my mind at its best that is what the republican party can do and so you know i'm not going to hold my breath but i'm just saying like maybe if that's where we get to because of this reckoning that they're going through right now i think that'd be a very good thing for the country long term what's what frightens me though is that the more republicans get relegated to being you know the minority party the further right they will be pulled because the the energy and the sort of like the driving force behind their voters, especially in very rural districts, is going to be further and further right. And how do they both 
channel that energy into political action, which they no doubt want to do, but also maintain some semblance as an institutionalist party that actually cares about the rule of law. That's I mean, uh, let's get back down to it. That was the frightening thing about the end of Donald Trump's presidency is that we had one. We only have two political parties here. One of two political parties seemed to be questioning the idea that they wanted to continue to participate in a democracy because they would have to give up power occasionally, right? I mean, that's what democracy requires. Both parties, or however many parties are involved, be be satisfied with the idea that they may be a minority party at some point, right? And our constitutional democracy has a lot of checks and balances included in that process to give the minority the minority power, uh, party a voice and to have and to have power. Think of the filibuster. That's what a filibuster is, right? It's it's an action well, that. It's where the minority party can say, look, we we don't want this to go through. We want to we want to place a check on this. Right. You're, you're being generous to characterize the filibuster as something that was intentional. That was not the intent. What, what the, the the intent of the fill the, the filibuster there was no intent there that was a loophole that's been exploited and has now become institutionalized but that was not something that was created on purpose and yeah i agree with you that but it's the, not necessarily a bad thing though is what i'm saying is for a minority party to have to be able to right. check the majority to some degree right you want that in a, in a democracy a and representative that's, that's, democracy especially I agree with that. And that kind of goes back to our conversation last week that if Joe Biden is going to have this commission on the judiciary, that maybe there should be a condition. A, 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 um, uh, wow. Why am I why am I going blank here on the doggy um, coin? You need to invest in doggy coin. That's why on doggy coin. there needs to be some kind <laughs> of a, a commission on the legislature. Thank you. Why is that word? So um, legislature, because, because if we're thinking about we're thinking about, like you said, what are the ways in which the party that's not in power can still have their voice represented? There ought to be thoughtful, deliberate ways in order to reflect those policy ideas and those thoughts and those opinions. And look, I, I, this is what I'll say, too. Look at the way our government is set up. It's already set up that way. If you think about Senate seats, every state in the union gets Two senators, whether you're California or North Dakota, they both only get two senators. So you have an entire legislative body that is built around the premise that even if you are not in the majority, that you should have some power. So I would just say that that that, that is the way our government was set up. And maybe there are other ways and that we need to reflect that. But um yeah. Anyway, yeah, the Republican Party needs to figure out how to win elections rather than try to disenfranchise people. Just just my opinion. I mean, and there there is a roadmap to doing that. I mean, I just think of myself, right? I I actually am more conservative, you know, fiscally than you might think. Socially, I'm quite liberal, um, and I I don't. Th the Republican Are Party doesn't. Conservatives investing in doggy coin now. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Maybe. bro. They they might be. Hey, I mean, there was a, there was a point at which a lot of people started investing in cannabis stocks who previously probably thought of cannabis as a harmful and dangerous illegal drug. Right. Right. Am I right? Well, actually, you know, that you could argue that investing in cannabis companies was always a fiscal conservative, a fiscally conservative thing to do if you think that that industry is going to grow over time, which it definitely will. But anyway, yeah, if we're, if we're just arguing pure capitalism, right? Like, well, I mean, right. so you could make a similar uh, a similar argument for doggy coin. <laughs> Alex, I have bad news that doggy coin is down seven percent in the past hour oh, oh my god oh my god oh my god i'm not 
<laughs> I'm just like, this is awful. I have my Robin Hood app open. I was actually Googling like Raspberry Pi stock ticker because I wanted to put a cryptocurrency stock ticker in the kitchen oh, <laughs> so I could just watch it go up and down constantly. I know it's awful. It's very it's, uh, it's addictive. It really is. It's an well, addiction. Let's, I might let's... need help. Let, we all need a little bit of help. Let's move on. We have we're <laughs> we're at forty minutes in. We're not even out of music and news. <sighs> Two quick Brandon, things. Wh- I have to ask a quick question. Um, why are you so entertaining? I don't understand what it is. This gravity you have. Just speak to me, brother. <laughs> entertain. I don't know about entertaining. I definitely can talk, and I can talk in a loud voice, and I can do that for a long time. But I'm not sure if anyone really finds it entertaining. Two, I do. Two really quick things. Um, yes. Give me. I, I, I want to challenge you. Give me a 30 second response. Joe Biden has ended intelligence briefings for disgraced former President Trump. There's a long (laughs) precedent of former presidents getting these intelligence briefings. But Biden has said that there is, quote, no need for Trump to have these briefings, citing his erratic behavior. And he's further went on to say that what value is giving him an intelligence briefing? What impact does it have at all other than the fact that he might slip and say something? (laughs) 30 seconds, Alex. What do you think of Biden ending these intelligence Uh, briefings for disgraced former President Trump? This is really difficult for me to do in 30 seconds. But briefly, let me just say that the class of former presidents is a very special club that Donald Trump has shown with his actions and with his personality. He has no intention of joining. Right. He is not going to stand side by side with Barack Obama, Joe Biden, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter and stand in equality with them as a former president. He is never going to do that. So why would a former president need to receive intelligence briefings? There are no federal laws that support this. This is simply a courtesy that is made, recognizing the importance of the job of president of the United States and the idea that these people may have a continued interest in the uh, in the benefit of the United States. Seeing as how President Donald J. Trump, as his last action in office, attempted to uh, bring about a a coup, right? A violent coup um, and called for an insurrection uh, in very publicly, just uh, basically an hour before the coup started in the Capitol. I do not see any reason for him to receive intelligence briefings. And I agree with Joe Biden. Actually, Joe Biden was incredibly charitable, I thought. What impact does he have at all other than the fact that he might slip? I think Donald Trump could very well sell uh, intelligence information. And I think everything is transactional with Trump. He made this extremely clear with the way he peddled out his pardons at the end of his presidency. I'm way over 30 seconds now, but I mean, I could go on, but I'll stop it there. No, that's good. I I think that that's right. I think your point about... Trump could literally sell this information. I think that's a good point, and I think that's a very real threat. So anyway, props on Joe Biden for doing that. One more very quick thing. We don't have to spend too long on this, but I just think it's interesting to to bring up as a point um, that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democrat, um, he has been signaling support for more progressive policies lately, and some people think that maybe that's to avoid a primary from someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, right? Um, AOC, AOC. they're both out of New York, say. and so it wouldn't have it wouldn't make the least amount of sense for her to maybe go for a Senate seat. But just to say that Chuck Schumer, you know, he has signaled support for Biden canceling student debt. I think that's important. He signaled support for decriminalizing cannabis. Um, and there's been other ways in which Chuck Schumer has taken a decidedly more progressive tone. And you talk about the parties maybe realigning. I think what Bernie Sanders has brought to this party, both in his run in 2016 and his run in 2020. 20, not just him alone, but 
elevating so many of these issues to the forefront, $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, environmental justice, racial justice. And again, this is not just the work of him, but it, these are things that he has been talking about and elevating that have now become more mainstream. And to see people, deep institutionalists, old, crusty Democrats like Chuck Schumer, right, that people like him are embracing these things, I think speaks to the relative health of the Democratic Party as compared to the Republican Party, because these are the kinds of issues that get more people activated who have not been voting, who do care about these things. This is how you grow a political party. I just want to say that it's good to see. So just wanted to make that point. I totally agree with you. And it does strike me that the energy definitely seems to be on the Democratic side right now as far as actual governance. Um, and I think actual that's a good thing. policy proposals, things that actually yeah, right. affect people's lives right. and actually help them. Because let's let's be honest, you know, Trump's biggest uh, we'll call it a policy success, I suppose, was that he built a big wall and he nearly finished it between the United States and Mexico. And did that change anything? I mean, we're, we're going to have all the same problems that we had before. We're going to have to deal with immigration. We're going to have to deal with the dreamers. Essentially, that was a ruse, right? That was a that was a bait and switch. That was something Trump, Trump sees things in these physical objects that he can build and point to because that's what he's done his whole life. He's built buildings, right? I'm successful because I built that building in New York, right? Like, so he had to build this wall so he could point at it. And it seems like a long time ago now, but like, what else did Trump really, you know, accomplish? I mean, not a whole lot. I would I would say, I mean, he he did move the embassy in in Israel to Jerusalem. I know that there's there's a lot of people who disagree with that move because it it um, inflames tensions there in the region. But the truth he, is, he gave a tax cut to the wealthy. The effects of his tax cut on the middle class are hitting people like you and I right now. We're paying more in taxes this tax year because of those Trump tax cuts. Like, literally, that's his legacy. Right. Dude, I'm I mean, paying way, way more in taxes, by the way. I was totally surprised. I just did my taxes and I was like, what happened? Um, I mean, we did yeah. get stimulus checks, too. So in the end, I think it cancels out, at least for this year. And hopefully Joe Biden will be able to make some changes there. But I, I want to make one other point about Chuck Schumer. I don't particularly care if he loses a primary. Right. Like, I don't care. Like if he if he can really harness the energy and bring a coalition together of more establishment Democrats and the young wing of the party, then then good for him. But like if he's going to get primaried, I think that's a very healthy thing. Um, and I feel sort of duplicitous saying that because I view primarying on the Republican side as a frightening proposition where whack jobs get into office like, you know, who we were, the people we were discussing earlier. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. So the whole thing is very interesting. And this is this is how politics happens, right? You you're sitting here, you're you're watching these daily that's we're making we're basically offering commentary on these daily political actions, but there's a wider picture being painted. And I think it is coming into view that 2022 is going to be a very interesting and atypical um, election year. I you know, generally the 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 power, the party in power is going to lose seats, but I I don't know if that's going to happen this year because the Democrats are doing a really good job of exposing the nonsense on the Republican side, you know? Well, there's one thing that is a little concerning, which is the reapportionment of congressional seats and redistricting and, and the role that gerrymandering has to play in that. So I will say that uh, Dave Wasserman, who's like a political analyst and whose Twitter name is actually redistrict, he is 
is predicting that Republicans may be able to make up the seats they need to retake the majority in the House simply by these redrawn congressional boundaries. That is terrifying. And I think that you and I at some point should do a deeper dive on redistricting. What does it mean? How it differs from state to state? Uh, what the consequences may be and maybe how we should be asking for district lines to be drawn in the future. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit terrifying that even as the Democratic Party brings more people into the fold and even as their policies appeal to a majority of Americans, Republican policies maybe don't, Republicans can still win elections because of things like how the district lines are drawn. And that's just a real bummer. Well, I, I can't remember. I feel ignorant because I can't remember which state it was, but it was one of the purple states. Maybe, you know, where they had actually passed a state resolution that a nonpartisan board will be drawing district lines. I think it, a couple states are like that. And there may have been. been yeah, yeah it could have been Colorado. Was it Colorado? I'm not sure. I don't remember. I mean, and there are also calls for redistricting to be done by computer, right? To be that these lines ought to be done by algorithms that take into account where people live and draw districts that make sense. I will say again, that maybe a conversation for a different day, districting and the, 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 the whole underlying assumption behind a district is that if you live in a geographically similar area, that you have similar political interests that, is still true. I think that is probably less true today than it maybe was in the past. And so I wouldn't mind there being kind of a, a fresh rethinking about, well, how is it if a political, uh, if an elected official represents a certain number of people, should it just boil down to where you live? Should it be your age or your income? Should it be your cultural identity? Should it be something else? How would you account for those things? I don't know. But I will just say that just because you and I live in the same neighborhood, it doesn't necessarily mean that we share political views, but that is like the underlying assumption to districts um, that kind of has been carrying the day in the first place. And I just think that's something that maybe we should think about. It's such a complex question. And I mean, if you look at some of these district maps, they're totally bizarre, right? You'll have this like big area circling a city and then you'll have this weird long strip that goes off into the middle of nowhere. And, you know, these it's it is really easy to create a situation where one or the other political party essentially has no chance of winning. Right. Depending on the voters you choose to include in these districts. So I, I don't know how I like your idea of it being done by a computer like neutrally. And then, you know, whatever happens, happens and, and politicians need to fight for votes. Um, it's too bad that we become so tribal in our politics, but it's also sort of a function of this red versus blue. Right. We have two political parties. It makes it very difficult to say, you know, to have swing voters, though a good number of them actually exist in this country. It's it's surprising sometimes how many. So, yeah. yeah. It's. I mean, we could go on and on on that, but I want to move down because I know you've been trying to get to this topic for weeks, literally for weeks. So let's go back in time <laughs> and let's just celebrate the fact that we took the Senate. The Democrats Yay! took the Senate. Oh, Georgia went to Biden. How did this happen? It's incredible. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm. <laughs> Brandon, I want to I want to ask you to just set the table. We were talking a little bit on our on our short break about the significance of the events that occurred in Georgia. So I love this term setting the table. Um, I just want you to give me a little just give me the 411 on your, you know, super 10,000 foot view of what happened there and what it means. 
Yeah, I'm going to the linen closet. I'm getting the placemats. I'm getting the fine silverware. I'm putting the glasses out, making sure we have a little butter dish. Yeah. Okay, so- okay. I got to do a quick aside. I remember us doing this as kids, you know, using utensils as tools, right? Like using a fork or a butter knife to like use it as a screwdriver or to pop open a door or whatever. You don't still and do that? To- it used to drive mom crazy. I remember this. And now my kids who are five and three are doing this, right? Like every fork we have, the tines are all bent. The butter knives are all wobbly. I'm like, guys, why? Like you have a screwdriver. You can come get me. Like, what is it about using utensils as tools? I don't It's just, I don't get it. Cause they're there. They're easily accessible. Right. I think that's, that's no, really. I mean, they're, they're right there. Like, I think that's, I think that's the deal. Setting with, the table with our for- kids. With our kids, too. Sorry. It's just funny because, like, they'll guiltily grab, like, a butter knife and run away with it to go do some random project. It's so funny to have, like, your oh three-year-old God. has this behind-the-scenes agenda and, like, you're like, Nikos, what are you doing? And he, like, doesn't <laughs> want to tell you. It's so cute. Anyway, go ahead. Set that oh, table. Oh, man. No, that's good. Set um, the damn table. So at the highest level, we're talking about you know, Democrats winning these two seats in Georgia. We've talked about this before, but, you know, like every state in the union, Georgia has two Senate seats. And during the November general election, the Republican candidates for both of those seats ended up getting more votes than the Democratic candidates. Game over, right? Wrong. Because in Georgia, if you don't win 50 percent in your race, it then goes to a runoff uh, the next month in January. And so I also want to say that the the whole point of having a runoff was really to solidify the power of white people in Georgia. It was to disenfranchise the minority. And I think it's really important to make that point. And also, um, well, real, really quickly, Brandon. So the theory there, which held true for a long time was that, you know, sure. You know, an African-American candidate might do okay in the general, but they'll never get their voters back out for a primary or or for, you know, for a runoff. Well, that turned out to be completely wrong. (laughs) Right. Because historically speaking, during special elections, non-presidential elections, you get lower voter turnout. And generally, the people who turn out most consistency consistently tend to be older and tend to be more conservative. So the logic stands that if you have a special election where you don't have like a big ticket candidate like a president on the ballot, fewer people turn out. Those people will tend to be older and more conservative. And then the more Republican conservative candidates will end up winning. Okay, fine. Excuse me, guys. This is this is President Donald Trump. See how good I've been for politics. Aren't you grateful to me? And so most people would have thought that because the Republican candidates did better during the general election and because this was a special election that, of course, the Republican candidates would end up winning. Well, because the Democrats were able to turn out voters and because Donald Trump suppressed Republican turnout by continuing to talk about the lies about voter fraud and and the like in Georgia— both Democratic candidates won those Senate seats in Georgia, which brought the U.S. Senate to a 50-50 tie between Democrats and Republicans. And when there is a tie, the tie-breaking vote comes from the vice president, who in this case is Vice President Kamala Harris, also a Democrat. So in effect, Democrats won the majority in the Senate because they won these two Senate seats in Georgia. And I wanted to tick through why that is so incredibly important and how this will affect people's lives moving forward. So the first thing is that with Democrats in control, that means that the majority leader of the Senate is now Democrat Chuck Schumer, who we just talked about, and is no longer the Republican Mitch McConnell. Alex, why does it matter that the majority leader in the Senate 
is Chuck Schumer rather than Mitch McConnell? Why does that matter? Uh, well, so famously, you know, Mitch McConnell referred to himself as the Grim Reaper of the Senate because I'm the place where Democratic bills go to die. The the why leader does of the, the Senate. Why does the majority the, leader have that power? Because they get to decide what what comes onto the floor for a vote. Essentially, exactly. they they yep. yeah they're going to set the set the process on what will even be considered. So there may have been a number of great Democratic bills that that could have even passed the Senate, but Mitch McConnell essentially gets to decide what you hear and what you and and what you get to vote on. Uh, it's also interesting that in this process of of majority leader being passed from McConnell um, over to Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell was really dragging his feet trying to get uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats to basically commit in writing that they would never get rid of the filibuster. Um, and, and also nice trying try, to Mitch. I mean, he I, honestly, I, I know you actually seem to hate Mitch McConnell. I actually don't hate him. He's actually gained a lot of favor with me the way he's conducted himself post election um, fraud charges from Trump. He has asserted himself as 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 someone who is willing to stand up for democracy in some regard. And I mean, I know he's been a little shady in his methods and he doesn't work for your team. But, you know, the the guy is really focused on his on his policy goals. You may not agree with them, but I feel. I like think when you're push- giving I think you're giving Mitch McConnell way too much credit. No, but I mean, he essentially he has nothing to gain from questioning Trump. He just won reelection. He's I mean, how old is he? One hundred and nine. He's got four more years as a senator. I mean, wh- why? Turtles can live to be 200, Alex. I, I I think honestly, I think partially it's it's Elaine Chow, his wife, who is behind the scenes being like, Mitch, you need to speak out about this, because from what I read, Elaine Chow was absolutely furious at what happened with the insurrection. And I think, you know, I just want to give Mitch McConnell some credit. I think it's worth giving people credit when when they do the right thing, right? No matter who they are. So, um, yeah, yeah. So he dragged his feet on this transfer of power. They have now agreed to uh, a, a new a, a new power sharing agreement where Democrats are going to be the head of Senate committees now. Obviously, as you mentioned, Kamala Harris is going to be the tiebreaker. Um, the Democrats did not agree to banish any um, attempt at getting rid of the filibuster, though, you know, two Democratic senators, notably Joe Manchin of Virginia, and I can't remember the other moderate Democrat said they would never vote to get rid of the filibuster. So Mitch McConnell said that was enough for him. Uh, Joe Manchin, I think, is out of West Virginia. Oh, West Virginia. Which yes, is yeah, the you're other right. Virginia. Yeah. But anyway, yeah sorry um, about that. Yes. Thank no, you. You're, you're good. So, yeah, that that's it. The majority leader matters because they decide what gets to be voted on on the Senate floor. And related to that, another reason why these two Georgia seats being won by Democrats is so important is because they also get to chair different committees, right? That's what you're talking about, where um, uh, Mitch McConnell agreed finally to relinquish power in these committees. That means that the new chairman of the Senate Budget Committee budget committee is none other than Senator Bernard Sanders out of Vermont. It's me, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Somebody it, it, who you may have heard of before, Alex. And that is really important. Having those votes in the entire Senate is important. Why? Think about COVID relief. So Joe Biden had talked a lot about bipartisanship and wanting to get to a place where the Senate and and the House were functioning with more unity. He wants Republicans to to come along. However, 
there is a way for Democrats to make things happen, whether Republicans want it to or not, and it's a process called budget reconciliation. If you are able to put together something that is tangentially related to the budget, then you don't need to have 60 votes and avoid a filibuster. There's a whole different conversation about how a filibuster <laughs> it's works. so weird. Let it's, me just say, it is so These are so weird. archaic. Yeah, these it's rules so are— so weird. And what, what that the government does is not in some way related to the budget. I mean, you could even make an argument that social, that, that social issues are related to the budget because almost everything has some sort of economic consequence, right? Absolutely. So and, I guess I, really quickly, I was just reading about how in these discussions on budget reconciliation, they have to convince the Senate— what what is the title of it parletarian who is the one who decides on the rules of the senate they have to convince whoever this person is that this is related to the budget and then it moves forward or not depending on this one person <laughs> so, so weird. all of uh, this is so again weird. having some kind of a commission on the legislative rules may be needed here because this is also cobbled together and archaic but the point is that with the seats in the Senate in order to pass something in the full Senate to say we're going to take this COVID package and send it to the budget committee. We only need 50 votes to do that, 50 plus Vice President Harris. That happened. And then it goes to the budget committee where you have a Democrat, Bernie Sanders, who is chairing that committee. And it they get to decide whether it comes out of that committee back to a vote on the Senate floor. Again, you only need a simple majority. You don't need to have a filibuster breaking 60 votes. So all of this is just to say that the COVID relief that we're thinking about, and it needs to happen before the middle of March, which is when unemployment benefits run out, the Per, the, the COVID checks to individuals, the unemployment piece of it, so many different things related to COVID relief that is so important. This would not be possible if Democrats did not have the bodies in the Senate to make it happen. And that, if for any other reason, is so incredibly important that Democrats won those two seats in Georgia, because without that, this wouldn't happen at all. I just... That's I, to me, that's pretty much as of right now, that's the biggest thing. OK, I so. mean, it's huge. We're I, it is interesting, though. I mean, under President Trump, you know, some some bills did come out that were that provided some covid relief. Remember, I mean, the the the. The Republicans were in control when those bills came out. Uh, the Republicans are just some. playing such a. It was not nearly enough, and it no, I mean, and uh, it, it was it was something. I mean, uh, it's just interesting. The Republicans are playing such an interesting political game here. You would think that they would want to be on record supporting COVID relief, and to their credit, ten of the more moderate Republican senators did have a meeting with Joe Biden last week, and this was really interesting. I think just the way that government functions now under President Biden looked very different than under President Trump. Everyone came out of that meeting saying it was an excellent meeting. It was a great conversation. It lasted two hours. You know, we didn't come to an agreement, but we we understood and we heard each other. And I think even if Joe Biden has to get his bills passed through budget reconciliation, he can't just, you know, get a, a majority in the Senate with Republicans voting for him. He's at least setting a much more, uh, I don't know, democratic tone with the way that he is approaching governance, right? Inviting people to come and speak and be heard. And look, if we don't agree, we don't agree. But it's not like he was demonizing people. He was just saying, look, I don't I don't think that 
this is enough and we're going to move forward through this other um, through this other method. And I think you're absolutely right, because uninsurance benefits are going to be running out soon. And if we don't replenish this, I mean, COVID is not over. You know, though vaccines are ramping up, we still have probably six more months of partial lockdowns and and the economy sort of in a state of um, hibernation, you know, until we can really start rearing again. We need to get people through these last few months. And all of the work that we've done so far will really be wasted if we don't take the opportunity to take this seriously and just push out of the pandemic with with really strong force. And I think if we do that, most economists are saying the economy is expected to make a full recovery. Janet Yellen in- included just came out saying, you know, I'm strongly in favor of what Joe Biden is proposing. Yeah. And speaking of Janet Yellen, who is the new Treasury secretary, talking more about why it matters that Democrats won in Georgia, uh, Joe Biden's cabinet, the approval for candidates like Janet Yellen, like Merrick Garland, like Pete Buttigieg, these would all probably be in question if Democrats didn't have a majority. And I think that that's important, too. It's like the function of our government it, it requires that the president have a cabinet and it, 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 we rely on the legislature to approve that cabinet. And so Democrats winning those seats means that those approvals were much easier to come by. Um, it's also, did you know, did you know Janet Yellen is the first female uh, secretary of the treasury? I did know that. And that's, that's huge. Um, and did, and, and did you know that um, there's many folks on the left who were very displeased with her nomination to that position and they feel like she is too centrist? I mean, it's weird that the Republicans would would contest that particular nomination, because to me, she seems like, you know, she's pretty centrist, pretty middle of the road, really. Well, I think so. Part of where I'm thinking with this is that if Republicans had a majority in the Senate and they were able to block nominations, you may have seen some Republicans that ended up voting for these people. If they knew that they could block them, they may not have voted for them just to create chaos, because, look, Republicans have not governed by proposing good policies for a very long time. They've governed by trying to obstruct, by trying to make the other party look bad, by trying to demonstrate that government doesn't work and look how terrible government is because they are the ones making it terrible, right? Yeah, that is how Republicans right. have been governing it. And that's just, it's just gross. Um, it, it, I mean, Donald Trump was sort of an attempt at like, let's actively govern now. And the, the things that they came forward with uh, didn't appeal to the majority of voters. Sorry. I mean, people people had a chance to vote up or down on that. Well, look at like Trump ran on abolishing Obamacare. Did he ever put up a replacement for Obamacare? Not once. Not ever. I love that you mentioned that. I mean, he always said, oh, it's in the works. It was never in the works. It's just like with Operation Warp Speed, you know, regarding the covid vaccines. When Biden's team got in there, they said. There's actually no plan for distributing these. There's actually no. They kept talking about this stockpile of vaccines. The Trump administration said was going to be released. And it turned out it didn't exist. So, I mean, Trump, <laughs> he, he governed by lying. I mean, th- let's just be honest about what it was. He governed with lies. That's what he did. That's he what told that's, again. That's what Republicans have been doing for decades. If you just look at the the core message of Republicans is that government is bad and and it doesn't work. And as soon as they get elected, they make damn well certain that it works less good than it did before in order to reaffirm the belief that it doesn't work. And that's just, that is no way to run a country, right? 
Um, I agree. Couple- they're they're more successful as a as a minority party in a lot of ways, just because of their their DNA. Right. They they feel like people are always out to get them. They have this sort of paranoid sort of view of government. And you're right. They I think that makes them successful as a minority party. Anyway, give me some more juicy details on what this means that that the Democrats uh, won in Georgia. I'm going to tick off a couple things. We're already at an hour five. And so I want to respect everybody's time here. But just a couple more reasons why it's important the Democrats won those seats in Georgia filling seats in the judiciary so judges being appointed that's important the uh the 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 question of whether the district of columbia or puerto rico could one day become a state that may only need 50 votes it's weird that we have to say it may only need 50 votes because we kind of don't know right but that is really important biden uh canceled the last parts of the keystone xl pipeline actually that was through executive order so actually uh, uh scratch that um here's something that's very interesting we talk about about the things that may be possible in our politics that over time our understanding of politics changes and that's because you do different things people get used to them and then you can sort of move on to the next thing after that there's a there's a term for that calling it's called moving the overton window which is the window of the things that we think may be possible the fact that we now have democrats in the senate rather than being majority republican we're going to see more democratically leaning politics policies, which means that the policies that come in the future may be even more progressive. And I think that is is sort of abstract, but it's really important to think about. So I, I don't know if there's like, there's a lot that we could say about this, but my point with this section was really just to get people thinking about all of the different ways in which winning those two seats by very narrow margins in one state will have massive generational implications for our politics and for the daily lives of people right now from COVID today, the COVID relief stuff today, to policies that may affect our children's children elections matter, voting matters, and and that's really my, my point of all this is that Every single vote matters. I know that sometimes that, you know, voting can feel uh, just a little tedious or maybe, you know, my voice doesn't matter in the millions and millions of people who are voting. It's important. That is the point is that this is very, very important. Can I back up a tiny bit? I think the Overton window is such an interesting tool for understanding politics. And so I just wanted to talk about it for just a second. And maybe that could be our last our last little bit here, unless we want to, you know, maybe mention impeachment trial in the Senate too quickly after that. But the Overton window is a term named after American policy analyst Joseph P. Overton. And it it basically is a scale of where an idea's political viability depends mainly on where it falls in this range. And I just wanted to read the range starting from least possible to most possible. Okay. The range goes from unthinkable to radical, acceptable, sensible, popular, and then in the middle is policy. And so you have this and and the the, uh, range swings both left and right, right? You have unthinkable left wing policies like, I don't know, uh, universal basic income of a million dollars for everybody (laughs) or something. And you have unthinkable right wing policies like, uh, I don't know, um, the handmaiden's tale. (laughs) 
right. <laughs> or whatever, whatever you want to say. So this scale moves, this, this window sort of slides. And we've seen this throughout, you know, just in our lives. Think about where LGBTQ rights have gone, right? We've gone in our lifetimes, Brandon, for a large majority of the population from maybe radical, unthinkable to popular policy on a lot of these things, right? So there's a number of, I mean, I know you could probably get into the weeds on a lot of, on, on a lot of things. Climate is another one, right? That I, I hope the Overton window is sliding where people are understanding taking care of the climate takes care of you and your family. Um, but whoever's in power sort of gets to exert some force on this Overton window. And I think what's interesting about the political climate we're living in right now is that the Overton window for Republicans has definitely moved to the right under Donald Trump and the Overton window for Democrats has definitely moved to the left. So the political parties are both diverging in these separate directions. And we just we live in a time of upheaval. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. I always tended to wonder, like, uh, are, when people look back on, on our place in history, is this going to be an interesting time or is it just going to be a footnote? And I think we're living in a very interesting time. No, we are. And here's one example of the Overton window moving. You think about Obamacare, right? The fact that there is a, you know, a, a way for more people to have access to health insurance, that there should be stronger regulations against healthcare companies. The fact that Obamacare was passed, it started affecting people's lives. More people got health coverage. People got to keep their kids on their health insurance. It was a popular policy after it was implemented. Because of that, there is now a majority of Democrats who support a concept like Medicare for all, which would have been something that back in 2008 would have been more in the unthinkable or, or maybe radical. And now it's moving, at least in the Democratic Party, towards something that's more popular. And had it not been, I think, in my view, for Obamacare, that shift in public opinion about this policy wouldn't have happened. And that's why it's so important that like people— I think rightfully criticize incrementalism because sometimes we need to have. That's exactly where I was going to go. Keep right. going. I love this. I well, love this. I mean, just that some people criticize incrementalism because they're like, look, we need this change right now. Well, right. sometimes taking a step towards something means that we can get there in the next step. I know that sometimes it's slow, it's clunky, it can be frustrating, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. And again, that's why I'd urge people um, to, to vote because that's important, even if it's not for people who perfectly align with your political values. And I would add, it's better than an, a violent overthrow of your government. Yeah, and it's better than a literal violent coup. It's literally better than a fascist. There is no, I mean, that's the thing that's so funny about, you know, their insurrection was, did they really think that any sort of functional government would come out of that? So like that day was going to come and go and Donald Trump remains president and things are actually going to be better. You know, really? Seriously? It's really, Any, it's really let's, odd. Let's end quickly because impeachment, the impeach, Donald J. Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate starts in a couple of days on Tuesday. And I just want to quickly go into it just because it's, it's obviously going to be talked about a lot in the news. What are your thoughts on this? Is it purely a political? political show. I mean, it, I, I think the chance that Donald Trump is actually convicted in the Senate is quite low. Do you think it's important for Democrats to come out and do this, uh, take this step and, and, and have this publicly sort of, um, you know, discussed? Or do you feel like this was a lost political opportunity for Democrats to move forward? No, I don't think that you're losing anything by doing this. It is important. It's important for now. It's important for history. You need to demonstrate that the behavior that Donald Trump took was unacceptable now and forever. And by the way, there are some rumblings that potentially 
there are Republicans who will surprise people and and vote to convict him that maybe Mitch McConnell is among those folks. I, you know, I don't know how much stock to put into some of it. I mean, this is just like kind of rumor mongering. I wanted to mention it because I've seen it more than once. But yes, it's important. Um, even if it turns out that Donald Trump is not convicted, it's important again to say that this is not acceptable. Our democracy is worth more than scoring political points or trying to become a tyrant. That's not something that's acceptable. And whatever Democrats can do to demonstrate that, they should do. And by the way, COVID relief, like I said earlier, it is moving to the Senate Budget Committee through reconciliation. So it's not like something is waiting on the back burner because the, Demo the Democrats are pursuing this impeachment trial. Um, it's also important to note that Donald Trump has said that he is not going to testify in his own impeachment. That seems a little guilty. Like, what do you mean you can't testify under oath that you didn't do anything wrong? Why might that be, right? So okay, I, so I, here's the interesting thing about that is, okay, so this is a really, this impeachment trial is really interesting to think about from a legal standpoint. Remember, this is not a criminal court, right? He's not facing any sort of charges here. Um, this is a purely political act, impeachment, right? And one of the um, one of the effects of this, if he is found guilty in a in a trial in the Senate, is that another vote could be taken to bar him from holding public office. We've talked about there are other ways that this vote could also be held under the Fourteenth Amendment. I think that's probably going to happen, no matter what. I, I mean, I, I don't expect this this impeachment trial to to produce a guilty finding but you know we'll, we'll put that aside the jurors in this trial are the people who were sitting in the senate when the insurrection occurred donald trump's speech is <laughs> was recorded yeah you can hear exactly what he said the question his the article of impeachment is did he inspire an insurrection i don't think there's much debate about that right of course he did right we'll never take back our country by weakness we're gonna be strong i mean he whipped up a crowd <laughs> and, and then they went and marched on the capitol so it's like that a, a defense for donald trump is not no i didn't right so his lawyers the defense that they're bringing is this is not constitutional because he is no longer in office. Well, that's pretty easy to shoot down too. He was in office when he was impeached, and now this is the conclusion of that trial, right? It's really not that hard. So from what I've read into this, um, the Democrats are going to try and use the protesters' own words against Donald Trump. Yes. And there are tons of recordings on the internet of, of people saying, I did this for Donald Trump. Donald Trump told me to be here. Um, the QAnon shaman, the guy with the, the buffalo horns on his head with the face paint, he actually offered to testify at the trial. I don't know if he's going to be there, but I think that would actually be a genius move by the Democrats to let this guy say, I went there because Donald Trump told me to, right? So what would Donald Trump have to gain by testifying? What's he going to say? I mean, literally, what is he going to say that's going to make him look better? There's nothing. So, again, you have to attack the process. And that is going to be his, his that's going to be his legal team's uh, strategy is going to be to attack the legal process and just say this whole thing is unconstitutional. We shouldn't even be having this discussion. I just think it's it's the the thought that you could commit a crime. And as long as you're no longer in that role, you can't be prosecuted for it. Nobody thinks that that's a good idea. Nobody thinks that that is the way that any of this should work. And I know that it's not a legal process, but just to say, like, if I am, like, murdering people at my work and then I switch jobs, it's like, oh, sorry, I switched jobs. Guess you can't try me for murder. Like, nobody thinks that that actually makes sense, right? No, and the impeachment is is a mechanism by which the the political process can say, 
what you did was unacceptable and like, then offer a partial remedy for it. And there's also precedent. Uh, I, I do not know the details and I apologize, but another official has been uh, in the 1800s. Uh, it was some sort of a fraud case where they were using their government office to actually produce wealth. Right. They were st essentially stealing money, you know, in, in some regard. And they were impeached and found guilty after their removal from office. I mean, if someone is doing something egregious, they should probably be removed from office immediately. Right. And then the right. impeachment trial may come after they've left. So Trump doesn't have a very strong legal strategy here, and it is going to be extremely interesting. I have one other question for you. Is there any possibility of of the Senate holding an anonymous vote on impeachment like they did with um, Elizabeth Cheney's um, leadership role in I the House? I don't think so. Um, the, the Republican vote for Liz Cheney was a party kind of governing itself, whereas this would be official Senate business. And I think you need to be on the record. So I don't think it's possible. Yeah, and uh, I, I that's think too it's bad good, because the good yeah, question, I, think, I bet if this was anonymous, it, I think it would fly because, like I said, there's a number of ambitious Republicans like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who probably and Mike Pence, for that matter, um, who would probably like to see Trump removed from the equation and then hopefully, you know, take up the mantle as the less insane Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. Well, at any rate, yeah, this is all wild. And uh, <laughs> just well, that, that that sigh was telling, Brandon. <laughs> it's just I mean, there will uh, we keep saying it. There will come a day where we're going to have an entire episode where we do not speak about the disgraced former president. But that day <laughs> is just not yet come. And thank goodness for that, boys. <laughs> but if you do want to hear us talk about any topic at all, you should check us out at our website. Is this a good time, Alex? At rememberpolisci.com. Yes, That's rememberpolisci.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, any podcatcher. We would really appreciate it if you're listening all the way to the end. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that yeah. We shoot, would... us a, shoot us a question. I mean, hey, if you want to be a guest on the show, we don't care who you are. Come on. We'll, we'll have you on. We don't That's, care. We're not quite. We have actually a couple of potential guests that we do want to get on the show. Um, we're still finding our groove. You know how it is. We're only 10, 11, 12 episodes in. But yeah, we appreciate all of you. If you want to share this with your friends, we'd appreciate it. And uh, that's all I got. Alex, any last thoughts? My last thoughts are dog e coin. Go get some doggy coin. <laughs> Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Doggy coin. That's a wrap, dude. Wait a minute. Say that one more time. What are you calling it? It's isn't it? Is it Doge? What is it? Wait, what did you just say, though? Doggy coin. <laughs> doggy coin. It's Doge. Yeah. OK, I call it doggy coin, though, because it's got a dog on it, right? <laughs>